the right or to the left? No? <laughs> Just depends. If you have Bibles with you, please open up to the Gospel of John, chapter 17. Uh, we have been working our way through John's Gospel, and um, I gotta tell you, I can't remember the last time I, I embarked upon an entire book study. It's been it's been quite a number of years, and um, I've really been enjoying our journey through John. It's it's helped um, it's helped solidify in my own heart and mind beliefs that I'd already held, and it's been enjoyable to to see uh, Jesus through the eyes of the Apostle John. And just how he interacted with people, and John's wonderful emphasis on both love uh, and relationship. So we're up to chapter 17. We'll finish chapter 17 today. And chapter 17 consists entirely of the prayers of Jesus. In verses 1 through 5, Jesus uh, begins the prayer, and he's praying for himself and for the Father's glory. And last week we looked at verses 6 through 19, where Jesus is praying for his closest friends. This his disciples, these are the men that he's been meeting with since chapter 13, where they gather together in the upper room and all kinds of interesting things happen. Jesus establishes a new covenant. He washes disciples' feet. There's the interaction between Jesus and Judas and, and then later on Jesus and Peter. Just amazing uh, time together and profound truths and insights that Jesus has been sharing with this gathering, this final Passover meal together uh, before Jesus' arrest and the beating and crucifixion that he, he would go through. And so um, he gives all this instruction. He's comforting his disciples. He's instructing his disciples. They seem very concerned about the fact that Jesus said he was going to be going away. They, they, they weren't quite grasping it. We have the advantage of having read the whole story and being well familiar with it. They're in the middle of it. They don't know when Jesus says he's going away, that he's talking about his death and then resurrection. They just think, hey, this is our good friend. We've kind of gone all in following him, and now he's saying he's going away. What does this mean uh, for our lives? And so they're upset, and Jesus has been trying to comfort them. He's been trying to teach them, and after all this, he prays. And then we reached a point in Jesus' prayer today after he prayed for himself and the Father's glory, after he prayed for his disciples, that he prays for us. He prays for you, and he prays for me. And so those are verses 20 to 26, and I'm going to take a look at those verses this morning. So why don't you follow along as I read those six or seven verses, and then we'll get into it. This is Jesus praying to the Father. He says, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me, and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me. I have loved them even as you've loved me. Father, I want those you've given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you gave me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you. 
and they know that you've sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love that you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. And if this was one of us, we would end that prayer with, and in Jesus' name. (laughs) Jesus didn't pray that way. He didn't add in Jesus' name at the end of his prayer. He didn't have to. It was Jesus praying. He didn't have to add in Jesus' name. So as I mentioned last week, it's to our benefit to pay close attention to everything that Jesus said or did in the Gospels. Um, I know of some people, um, people have shared with me over the years, that um, they've used as a devotional time, they would go through the, the New Testament and they would read the red. You know, there are some Bibles that have the words of Jesus printed in red. And so they wanted to do something new, something different. Instead, so instead of reading everything, they would just read the red. They wanted to focus specifically on what Jesus is saying. They read the red. So it's, I, think, I think that's a fun and unique and a different way to study Scripture. You might consider that in the new year for yourself. But I think it's to our advantage to pay attention to everything that Jesus says and does. All the more so, the prayers of Jesus. It gives us rich insight into the relationship he had with the Father. So you might consider some of that. So on this profoundly significant night, this is, Jesus knows he's going away. He's told his disciples specifically that he is. This is, he spent all this time with them and things are coming to a crescendo. We're about ready to enter into the time of the crucifixion in this gospel account. And on this significant night, Jesus does many profound things. But part of it, Part of it is that he prays for you, and he prays for me. He prays for us. So verse 20, when Jesus says, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. The them alone, in verse 20, referred to here, he's not praying for them alone. He's not praying for his disciples alone, the ones that he had just finished praying for in verses 6 to 19. I'm not praying for them alone, Father, but for those who will believe in his message in their message, who believe in me because of their message. That's us. We're the ones who believe in Jesus because of the message that the, that the disciples, the apostles, carried on uh, after Jesus' ascension. So his prayers, this faithful night, are not just for his disciples alone, but they're for us. We who have believed in Jesus because of them. More than 2,000 years later, the message of the gospel, it carries on. And because of it, we... The Charlottetown Vineyard, we put our faith, our trust, our belief, our hope in Christ alone. So make no mistake, don't, there's not some other side angle to this. When he says, he really is praying for us, those of us who are seated right here today. Now, verse 21. <clears throat> I'm of the personal opinion that verse 21 in chapter 17 might be among the very most and significant of all words, of all verses in all of the Bible. I think they're that profound. I think they're that crystal in their clarity, so definitive of God's plan and his purpose. This is when, what Jesus prays for us. Right? I'll start at verse 20 again. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Come. And he goes on, he prays the prayer. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me 
and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. So first Jesus identifies for whom he's praying, then he prays the prayer, and then he defines the parameters of the request, and finally he declares the intended purpose, all in verse 21. So, excuse me, we have the people, the prayer, the parameters, the purpose. I like all the P's, right? Ministers love doing that. The people he's praying for. Jesus is indeed praying for all of us. I pray for all of those who will believe in me through their message. The prayer is this. He's praying for unity, for oneness, that we all may be one. He prays that all of them may be one. And the parameters, he defines what this oneness is. He doesn't leave it undefined. He says, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us. What a profound depth of connection. What a profound depth of connectedness Jesus requests from the Father. There's no higher degree, there's no higher quality or purity of connection and relationship than what's been shared throughout eternity between the Father, Son, and Spirit. That, that's the level, that's the measure of oneness in the prayer of Jesus for you and me. And then the purpose. Why is this why is he requesting this oneness of the all? So that the world may believe that you sent me. Why does he pray that we be, be one? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. So what is it that will cause the world to believe? Is it preaching? No. Is it outreach? Is it even evangelistic outreach? Is it outreach to the lost, the sick, and the poor? No. Is it social justice that we that we resolve all the ills of culture and society throughout the millennia. Is that why Jesus prays? Is, 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 is that what it's going to be to get the world to believe that, they, that that's why Jesus was sent? No, no. Let me just say it a little more clearly. When Jesus prays that we be one, and the purpose behind it is so that the world may believe that the Father sent Jesus. It's that oneness that's going to be the testimony to the world. That's the thing. Us being one that's going to reveal to all mankind that the Father sent Jesus. It's not, it's not going to be excellent preaching or world-class worship or outreach or social justice. Those aren't bad things. It's just not what Jesus is praying for here. It, it's the oneness. It's the unity. That's essential. And you've heard me say this before, but I can't help but repeat myself. I think the church has so missed the boat. When I say the church, I'm not just talking about Charlottetown Vineyard. Capital C, the church. The whole church. We've gotten really good at doing churchy stuff. We've gotten really good at religious activity. We've even gotten good at doing good things. You know, ministering to the lost, the sick, and the poor, or doing some kind of outreach, or social justice. Those are all good things. But we've done it all without God. There are churches across the land that do church very well. It doesn't matter if God shows up or not. Some of them would prefer that he not show up because he might mess up their services. <laughs> with I don't know, with shouting or yelling or dancing or whatever he wants to do in the moment. Isn't it a sad state that we can do church without God? We can do good without God. None of those things did Jesus pray for. He prayed that we be one. 
And you pray that we would be one at a profound level. It's this connection with God, this oneness with him. It's all about relationship. It's all about love. So why this and not that? Jesus could have prayed for any number of things on this fateful night. As he prayed for us, as he looked forward in time, throughout thousands of years, he could have prayed anything he wanted for his church. But he prays for unity. He prays for one. He prays for connection. Why? Why would he do that? Because relationship is paramount to the Godhead. It's the essence of who they are, that they share love uh, amongst themselves with one another. It's all about relationship. And then, if that's not enough, <laughs> like any good preacher, Jesus repeats himself. Verses 22 and 23, he's pretty much praying the same thing again, but a little bit differently. He says, I have given them the glory you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So, I mean, verse 21, Jesus prays something, and then in 22 and 23, he basically repeats his prayer. So what is this oneness? What is this unity that he asked for? Well, the word here used, um, that's translated into the English one, it doesn't mean the, the numerical identifier, the number one. It means union, or it means concord. Think agreement or harmony between peoples, between peoples or groups. It's actually the exact opposite of disagreement or discord. Now, I've been in a lot of worship bands over the years, and it's always wonderful when you've got some singers on your, on your team that know how to harmonize. I've always been able to sing melody, and on rare occasions, maybe a couple of notes here or there, I could pick up a harmony. I don't harmonize very well. It's not a gift or a skill, not a gift I have or, or a skill I've developed, but it's always wonderful to have members on your team who are able to harmonize, and some can go higher and some can go lower, and if you have a few people who can do it, it just fills it out, man. It just it makes the sound so much richer. That's a really good picture of what this unity is, of what this oneness is. A bunch of different voices, all in one accord, all harmonizing. And so when they come together, the sum is, is greater than the individual. And so what I'm saying is, I, in this oneness, in this unity that Jesus prays for, it's not asking, Jesus isn't asking that we would all be identical to one another. He, it's not a call for cookie-cutter Christians. Though denominations have tried to force that on the church throughout generations, we just have to make everybody believe exactly the same way and behave exactly the same way. And God forbid the one, what's the old Chinese proverb says, the nail that sticks up gets hammered, right? You know, and, Anybody been hammered? I've been hammered a couple of times. And I, I mean that in Christian sense. <laughs> hammered a couple of times. So it, union isn't uniformity. And concord or harmony, it actually requires some differences. But these are differences that complement one another, that enhance or edify one another. It's a wonderful picture of the Trinity. If you think about it, three who were one, three separate identities, three distinct personalities with oneness of heart, mind, and perfect in a 
perfect circle of love, a perfect circle of unity. And so what Jesus asked for isn't that we here on earth would simply play nice together, though that would be nice. And, and I think the father does like it. He truly does like it when his kids play nice together. Um, that's one of the reasons I like to collaborate with other local churches. Jesus prays that we would be one, and then he defines it. He does it in verse 21 and 22. He says, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us. That the oneness that he's, he's praying for, for you and me, for us here today, is that we would be one together, that we would be so bound and connected together that it would be to the same level and degree that Jesus shares with the Father. And in verse 22, it says, that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me. That they may be brought to complete unity. Not just partial unity, but complete unity. Jesus' prayer isn't that we would simply get along with one another, but rather that we would be one with God. That we would be one with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. That we would be one with the Trinity as they are one. That's a profound prayer. Can, if we could but grasp how momentous this actually is. He, he's praying that we would be perfectly synchronized together. The, the profoundness of this request, um, it's a game changer. It clarifies everything. It clarifies the purpose of creation. It clarifies the purpose of the incarnation, the cross, and the resurrection. It clarifies the, the, the full meaning behind the second coming. It's all for this, to this one end, that God wants to be one with us. He wants that level of relationship. The closest thing that we have in our modern culture, and it's kind of deteriorating, but the closest thing we have is the picture of marriage, right? That the two would become one, right? The, the two become one flesh. The, the husband and the wife are joined together, and they become one. It's the closest concept that we have. They were separate, and now they're together. And even that falls apart as an analogy. God wants a level of relationship with his sons and daughters, I think, that we're barely able to fathom. He, his desire for us, it's revealed the, the extravagance of his desire for you and me. It's revealed in the creation of the universe. Such incredible, lavish, and extravagant a demonstration. So why? Why creation? In, in light of this picture, why? Well, God wanted a place to hang out with you and me. See, he needed a place that when he created Adam and Eve, he could walk with them in the garden in the cool of the day. And so in order for there to be an, uh, an Eden... There had to be a planet Earth. And for there to be a planet Earth, God created a solar system and the Milky Way and galaxies and the entire universe. So excited that he was to have company, as it were, that he created all the universe and hung our planet in the perfect location so that we could live and breathe. And that would be the place where he would meet with you and me. Oh, 
Now, I know sometimes Nadine makes a, uh, invite people over, makes a, a really nice dinner, and she may spend a couple of days preparing that meal. And she'll, she'll have the whole table set real nice. She'll take out the good dishes and puts everything on the table and takes out the, her best serving plates, and she really does it up nice when she's going to have company over. It's like, oh, this looks really good. That's kind of like what God did. But on his scale, he created the universe. So great is his desire to connect with you and me. Such an expression of his lavish and great love for us is that he created all that so we could walk together in the cool of the day. Oh, he's amazing. Now, I know, firsthand experience, that sometimes we go through stuff in life. we got circumstances. We have struggles and trials that we face. We're thinking, God, are you there? I know what that's like. But... I want to challenge you. I want to encourage you. The next time you're in that place, go outside at night and look up and see the stars and know this. His desire to be one with you was so great that he created all of that just so he could have a place to hang out. Guys, I'm telling you, God is better than you think he is. He's more good than you've been told. He's kind and he's loving. He really likes you and he wants to be with you. Yes. That's good news. That's really good news. Right? So, he added nothing. He created everything. His love for us, it's truly indescribable. And it's part of why Paul prays for the church at Ephesus. I love the richness of, of Paul's prayer in, in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 and 19. He says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Hope. Oh, I'm thinking Paul kind of was getting a handle on Jesus' prayer from John 17. He's grasping the significance of it, the height, the length, the length, the depth, the breadth of the love of God, of this connectedness, of this oneness to be with him, that we would be so filled. And he writes here, he prays here, and it's written in Ephesians 3, that we would know this love which surpasses knowledge. And like I've told you so many times, this word know here is once again the word gnosko. And it means to, it means to know an experiential, intimate love. He's saying to know this love, to, ex to intimately experience this love which surpasses information which surpasses the facts and the figures, which surpasses, I'll, I'll put the inference, it surpasses the commandments and the laws and the religious traditions of men. To know, to intimately experience this love of God surpasses all of that head knowledge. Oh, that we, the Charlottetown Vineyard, would be so rooted in that love that we indeed would have the power of God needed to grasp just how high and wide and long and deep God's love is for us. So it's to that end 
It's to the end of the, the oneness of His love that Jesus has given us something. He's given us His glory. Verse 22 says, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one, as we are one. Why this glory? Jesus mentions it in verse 5, and again in verse 24, this chapter, verse 5 says, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had before the world began. And then in verse 24, he prays again, he says, Father, I want those you've given me to be with me where I am, to see my glory, the glory uh, you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. So what do we know? The Father gave glory to Jesus, a glory that he had before the world was created, a glory that can be seen, a glory that's given because of love. And verse 22 tells us that it is this glory that will help us be one just as there's a oneness among the members of the Trinity. So, question, what existed prior to creation? So when he says creation, prior, that means before anything else existed. Before God said, let there be light, and there was light, there was nothing. There was nothing prior to that. And creation began when God uttered the words, let there be light. So what existed before creation? Just, well, just God. I mean, the only thing that existed prior to creation was Him. It was the Father, Son, and Spirit. That, that was all that existed. So it gives us a little bit of a clue here. If we want to understand what this glory is, that, that's, a, that's a pretty good clue. I read a bunch of commentators just to see what they said glory was. Nobody agreed. Everybody had a different opinion. Not surprised. I got a lot of different commentaries at my disposal. Nobody agreed on what the glory is. Um, I thought that Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown's commentary, that I think that they're on the right track, and I thought the pulpit commentary um, were on a pretty good track as well. Let me share with you just a, a couple of sentences from each. From Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown speaking about this glory, they said, It is not the future of glory, it is not the future glory of the heavenly state, but the secret of that present unity just before spoken of. The glory, therefore, of the indwelling spirit of Christ. The glory of an accepted state of a holy character of every grace. Indwelling spirit of Christ. And a pulpit commentary defines glory here in verse 22 as the glory of the supernatural life of divine sonship and self-sacrificing love as of the very essence of God. So, just to kind of pull out of that, both commentators are seem to be saying something similar about the indwelling spirit and about um, the supernatural life, divine sonship, and the very essence of God. So what is this glory? What is it that existed prior to creation? What is it that will help us be one with one another? What is it that Jesus got from the Father and is giving to us? Well, in my humble opinion, and only because I know that there are many others out there. You can decide for yourself, but this is what I offer to you. I think that this glory that Jesus is speaking of is the supernatural life of the indwelling Spirit of Christ. It's, it's the Holy Spirit. I think this glory that will help us to be one. I think it's the third member of the Trinity. 
It fits the narrative. It's the representation of, of the Holy Spirit as that member of the Trinity in the prayer between the Father and the Son. Now, like I said, there are many and varied opinions among biblical commentaries. I think this glory of God is actually God himself in the person of the Holy Spirit. Jesus did say he would send us a helper, right? And this glory will help us to become one. Verses 25 and 26, Jesus continues his prayer. He says, Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you. And they know that you sent me. And I have made you known to them. And will continue to make them known. In order that the love you have for me may be in them, and that I myself may be in them. Five times in these two verses, the word know or known is used. Each and every time, it's the same Greek word, gnosko, meaning to know by intimate experience. This knowing is an ongoing knowing. He continues to make the Father gnosko to us in order that we might experience the love shed between Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, you and I are capable of love at all simply because Love came down at Christmas. God loved us first. We love because he first loves us. It says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. Because of his love, we're able to love one another. It's what Jesus prayed. Excuse me. It's the new command Jesus gave to his disciples back in chapter 13. Of John's Gospel, he says, a new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. Can you see here, in light of chapter 17, that what he's talking about, it's the same love that he shared with the Father. That's the love he's given to us. He says, by this, it echoes. Jesus' prayer in 17 echoes his command in, in 13. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples. How you love one another. We'll love one another to the degree that we're connected with him. That we're one with him. That his love abides and flows through us. Unity and love with God and each other. That's our witness to a lost and dying world. John 17, 21. The second half of the verse. It says, may they also be in us so the world, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Verse 23, I in them, you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then, once we're in that place of complete unity with one another and with our God, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Guys, all about relationship. This whole Christianity thing, it's all about relationship. And I love the Charlottetown Vineyard, and I love the things that God's doing in our midst and you know, what he's making us to become. But please listen to me. This is bigger than our congregation. This is bigger than all the churches on Charlottetown. This is bigger than all the groups that meet throughout the world. And 
and the groups that meet, the things that we call churches, they gather together, it ought to be, in my humble opinion, to this end. It ought to be to this end. It, it ought to be at the very top of our list for why we exist and our purpose for being. Because I tell you what, you can have this. If all those churches cease to exist tomorrow, I don't think, it, I don't think we'll see it in our lifetime, but if, if the Canadian government made some grand edict that we would no longer have the freedom to practice religion, to gather together on Sunday mornings, if they, if they completely outlawed it, like other countries of the world, this could still happen. See, what did Jesus do? He met with a handful of friends, and he loved them. He walked with them in relationship and in friendship to this end. Oh, as, as the centuries have gone by, it's evolved into what we do now. And I'm not saying this is bad. I'm just saying it's not essential. It's not essential to this end. To the degree that our gathering together and meeting as this group gets us to this place, I think it's a good thing. But if we forsake this, we're wasting our time. And we're wasting our time even if we're doing all other good stuff. Even if we built a big church building and filled it with hundreds of people, if we're not doing this, we're wasting our time. We could feed all the poor people in Charlottetown and miss this, it's a mistake. We could help all the alcoholics get sober, really good thing. But we miss this, it's tragic. I think it's horrifying. Good becomes the enemy of best. It is for this oneness with God that the church exists. It's for this connection with the manifest presence of God. This is the best portion. This alone is the chief purpose of our lives, that we would be one with him. That to experientially know and love him forever. This is the first. This is the highest. This is the best. Everything else is at least second and only good. So the highest purpose of the church isn't self-improvement to make ourselves better people. It isn't education to make us better students of the Bible. It isn't spiritual warfare to take down the spiritual darkness so present in this world. It isn't for an improved society where justice is rendered and the needs of the less fortunate are met. The highest purpose of the church is to be the bride of Christ. It's so that the bride can be intimate with the bridegroom. That's the best portion. That's the high purpose. That's what Jesus prayed for. How do I know? Because 2,000 plus years ago, when Jesus prayed for you and me, these are the things he asked for. That we'd have that kind of oneness. All these other very good things, I'm not seeing are bad things. All these other things ought to be the fruit of our intimate relationships with God. All of it, no matter how noble, are at best second. As, and as a matter of fact, and you've probably seen it too, they become idols and substitutes for God when they take the first place. When they take the second place, it's fine. But when they're elevated to the highest reason why we exist, they become idols. And we wind up worshiping them. We worship our programs, we worship our buildings. I've done this too long. 
I'm not in this for buildings or budgets or branding or Save Me Jesus new product development. I just, I just don't have any of any of that. But for oneness with God, for intimacy with Him, to truly know Him and help other people fall madly and passionately in love with Him. Oh, I'm not in this for sin management. I could barely manage my sin. God knows. I don't want to be in the business of policing or managing yours. I don't think it's any of my business. I just want to help you fall in love with Jesus. And then between the two of you, you can figure out your own sin management. The church doesn't exist to be the moral policeman on the planet. That's not why we exist. We exist to be matchmakers. We exist to help people fall madly and passionately in love with the bridegroom. Because he's amazing. Oh, I think the statement we've all heard before is profoundly true. Good is enemy of best. And all the good things the church does, I think, is enemy of the best thing it's supposed to be doing. It's helping people get to know God. So I, I'm not against doing those other things. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But let's, let's pour the lion's share of our resources, our, our time, our energy into him and our connection with him and then let other things be birthed out of that wouldn't that be awesome so let's pray can I have the worship team back up thank you Lord oh Jesus Lord we come before you this morning and we pray like you prayed we ask the Father what you asked the Father for. Oh God, make us one with you. Lord, have mercy. Have mercy, oh God. And do God-sized things in our midst. I've been doing this for so long, and I just don't know how to get from here to there. I got fire in my belly. There's passion in my heart, Lord. But sometimes it's just that it's been... It's been so long and so far from your intent. I really don't think we can get there without you. So Lord, give us that glory. Give us the Holy Spirit in whatever way and measure we need. With whatever power, with whatever revelation is necessary. I cry out, Father, make us one with you just as you are one. Holy Spirit, come and live and dwell in our hearts so that not only would we love you with all our heart and all our mind and all our soul and all our strength, but that we would love one another as well. Lord, return us to our first love. Do it, Lord. If anybody needs prayer this morning, as these guys lead us in a final song, come forward. I'll be happy to pray for you. And then uh, we'll close in prayer after that.